We studied last week a little bit about who John was, John the Baptist, and what his objective or mission was assigned by God as prophesied by the angel to his mother. We find that he was a Nazarite. Anybody remember what a Nazarite was? Did you guys forget? I'm going to start quizzing you guys every week. They don't cut their hair. They don't cut their hair. They don't cut their So they're Rasta. No. They don't cut their hair. Don't tell me they smoke weed. They don't. They don't cut their hair. And they eat only special food. And they live a very ascetic life. Ascetic means they give up everything. They give up all the joys and the and the luxuries of life. Do we have another example of uh, a Nazarite? Old Testament, New Testament. Come on, you know what? Samson. Huh? Samson. Who said that? Oh, Caroline said that. Caroline, I need hearing aids. And not only do I need hearing aids, I need new glasses. So when sounds come, I don't know where they're coming from. So yes. Samson is a good example of the Nazarite. Yes, absolutely. Ate special foods. He was dedicated to a special purpose. Could not cut his hair. Was not allowed to cut his hair. Another Nazarite in the New Testament. A cousin of John the Baptist. Jesus. Ah, who said that? Very good. You know, it's people like Caroline who mess up the, 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 the bell curve in the class for grading, huh? They get all the answers right. Everybody else, ah, I got bad grades. But Jesus is an example of an asteroid, absolutely. Dedicated to a specific mission, dedicated to a certain job. Now, John the Baptist is making all kinds of trouble in and around Jerusalem by preaching and getting the attention not only of the common people, but the leaders of the land as well. So they're all thronging to him. To hear his message of, who in the world are you? Who are you? He doesn't want to take any credit. Unlike preachers we see today, we want to make ourselves very important. And somebody, oh, I'm so and so and so and so. I'm nobody, he says. There's somebody who's coming whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He also makes a claim. He says, I am the one of whom it was said, one cry, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I am the guy who the great prophet, the greatest prophet Isaiah, I am the one who Isaiah warned you about, that I am going to come and I will announce the coming of the greatest of all. That's me. In order for us to understand what the mission of John was, and rather than focusing on what the question and answer here was between John and the Pharisees, let's go right back to Isaiah. Who was Isaiah? You were that? A prophet. What is a prophet? 
Somebody who tells the future? Yeah. Well, pardon me. Yeah. I asked I asked this question before. What is the difference in a prophet and a priest? Huh? A priest does what? He brings the people to my sign language can help me. <laughs> brings the people to Yeah. And what does the prophet do? He brings a message of God to Brings a message of God to the people. And Isaiah was what? A minor prophet? One of the major prophets? He was the greatest of all the prophets. The greatest of all the prophets. And it was he who was chosen by God to announce the coming of the Savior of the world. What a privilege and an honor. But what a great responsibility. And it was through his warnings to the people of Israel and the kings of Israel, it was because of that that he was killed by a king of Israel. Let us read his message. Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 to 4. And then we're going to go to 8 to 11, verse 1 to 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to, pray, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and a release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who grieve in Zion, and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will, be re they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities and have been devastated for generations. Ruined cities that have been uh, devastated for generations. What was the situation here with Isaiah at this time? Where was Israel at this time? Was Israel... Now, celebrating prosperity and greatness, it was not. Long before, when we go to the early part of the book of Isaiah, from chapters 1 to 5, we find there is great prosperity in Israel, like never seen before. Because they were now under the rule of the young king Uzziah, you remember him? At 16 years of age, he became king and ruled for 52 years. And it was during his time, Israel saw the greatest prosperity ever. But he had died a long time ago when we come to chapter 61. All of that prosperity was gone. And Israel was once again in slavery. You know, they have this habit, Israel. They have huge prosperity and then slavery. We found 
in the early part of the Bible, when we, when we find uh, Moses, in the second chapter of uh, the book uh, of the Old Testament, where is Israel? Enjoying a lot of prosperity? In the book of Exodus, where are they? Egypt. Huh? Egypt. Egypt. How long? 400 years. And then we see God brings them out, brings them prosperity. Joshua makes them promise that you guys are going to be keep the covenant with God. Am I right? Before they go into the promised land. Oh yeah, we will. But as soon as they become prosperous, they once again go down the drain and they forget about God. Once again, they get themselves in trouble. Here is one of those times. For hundreds of years, they've been in Babylon. Now here they are in slavery. And Isaiah preaches a message that to the local people who are living at the time of Isaiah is a message of freedom from slavery. It is a message of promise that you will prosper. And rather than crying and weeping here in slavery, you would become princes and princesses again. It talks about ashes on your head. Putting ashes on your head. What does that mean? Huh? A little louder. I told you I'm deaf. Sorry for your. Well, that's a voice. You learn from your mom. When people put ashes on their head, it was during a time when they were in sorrow. They were in mourning. We saw that with Job, remember? Ashes on the head. And crying and weeping, they're mourning. So here we are with people, and, and Isaiah said, Your mourning will turn to joy. Your crying will turn to praise. The ashes will turn to crowns. He's promising them a time when they will come out of slavery. Now I want to warn you. Sometimes people think that I like to pick on pastors who preach prosperity and health and wealth. Sometimes people think that. And always they are right. I do. Because that is not the message in the Bible. If I confuse you about what I said, I'll say it more clearly. The preaching that we hear from the pulpit that uses this passage to tell us that God's people are going to be free of disease and sickness, that God's people are going to become rich and princes and princesses and own this world, are preachers who are preaching fallacy, preachers who are preaching Actually, the, 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 the work and the, and the message of the devil. That's exactly what it is. When you turn on your television and you hear people like Joel Osteen and others like him, and I'm saying the name in case I hurt anybody's feelings, you come and talk to me afterward and I'll tell you why. These are people who are taking the, the, the honest, sincere people seeking God and giving them instead the message of Satan. And one day, maybe not here, but I will show you 
the books from where these people get their message. And why I say that that is a message not from God. Then use these passages to tell people that they have a right to be rich. That is not what the message is over here. In order for us to understand any message, any passage of the Bible, we have to understand the context as we do every week. Am I right? We normally go through and find out what is written, who is written by, who is written for, and so on. Am I right? So, let's do that. What is the entire purpose of the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible from start to finish? What happened in the Old Testament? God made the world. Adam and Eve were sinless. They had the temporary, if you will, or conditional immortality. They could have lived forever if they kept the conditions. They sinned, and because of the sin, there was separation between them and God. And immediately, even the Bible tells us, even before the foundation of the world, God had put in place a plan of salvation. Am I right? And that plan of salvation goes into effect by the sacrificial system, right there in the Garden of Eden. Through the killing of the animals, where God put the skin of animals on them to protect them. And that plan of salvation starts in Genesis, and we see right through the Bible, all the way to Revelation. Every part of the Bible is about one thing, and one thing alone. And what is that? Redemption. How can we, who broke away from God at the beginning, we separated from God, had this great chasm between us and God because of sin, how can we go back to Him? This is in Genesis, where all this has started already. And the Bible walks us through that redemption process. And in the book of Revelation, we have again the second coming of Jesus Christ and the Re-establishment of the Garden of Eden in purity and righteousness. The Bible is not about how to get rich. The Bible is not about this temporal life. It does tell us how in our temporal life we can have proof that there is something wrong with us. It tells us that. And then it tells us, here's how you go from that wrong, sinful life. Here's how you move from here into this other life, the life of righteousness. And then what is the proof that there's a life of righteousness taking place in us? Is the works of God in our life through the spirit of who? God. So we go from the spirit of Satan to the spirit of God in the process of salvation by justification, by sanctification, and eventually by glorification with God for eternity. That is what the Bible is about. And it is in this context that we have to read Isaiah. And so let's go back and redo this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Now look at the word Lord. Second line. The Spirit of the Savior... The, the, the Spirit of the Sovereign, Lord, first line, is on me because the Lord has anointed me. We studied this before. When you have the word L-O-R-D, all in capitals, what does that mean? Which Lord is he talking about? 
No, it's talking about only one God. The Lord has anointed me. It is Jehovah. Whenever in the Bible you have the word Yahweh, it is translated in English, it is always in capital letters, L-O-R-D in capital letters. So it says, the Lord has anointed me, God has anointed me to preach what? To preach good news to the poor. Now, what is good news? <clears throat> Another word for good news, you all know this. Think, think, think. What is good news? That what? The gospel. Salvation to the people. Salvation to the people, yes. The word gospel that we read in the Bible, and one day we'll have a study on that. Gospel has several different meanings and examples within the Bible. The word gospel means what? Good news. So when he says to preach the good news, he's saying, I'm here to preach the gospel. And who is the gospel? What is the good news? That we have a Savior. Jesus Christ, when we were dying in sin, when we were dead for eternity, because of our sin, we have good news that we have a Savior. That is the gospel. That is what Isaiah is saying. And this is what John is pointing back now to Isaiah, saying, I am here to preach to you that there is somebody who is coming, who is standing among you. Who is who? Who is going to come? But I was telling you about him. When did God anoint Isaiah? Come on, we know this. When did God anoint Isaiah? In chapter 6, Isaiah says he's unworthy. He's unworthy to be, uh, to, to be even in the presence of God or even look upon God. He could not. He sees the vision. Am I right? He sees the vision of the, uh, the, the cherubim. And the cherubim hide their faces, hide their feet, and then they fly and they say, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. When he says unclean lips, he means everything that comes out of his lips is sinful, meaning everything that is in his heart, everything that is in his mind is sinful. And he confesses his sin. And God then says to the angel, Go and touch his lips with this, with a, with a fiery coal from the altar, and he's anointed by that coal, and it begins a new kind of preaching, a new kind of teaching, and this is the anointing he is talking about. I have been anointed by the Lord to preach what? The good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom to the captives. When he says freedom to the captives, the people of that time understand that because they're slaves. But in the spiritual realm, who are the captives? Paul talks about it in Romans. He says, We are what? Slaves to? So we, are, we are born slaves to sin. We are captives of sin. So he says, I am come here. To proclaim freedom to the slaves to sin. And to release from darkness the prisoners. Do you know where prisoners were kept in the old days? Not like the fancy jails we have today. If the jails aren't just right, 
There's all kinds of people who protest out there. And so, oh, you got to get better for your big signs. This is my symbol for signs. Big signs saying, our prisoners need better food. Huh? More comfortable places, air conditioning and television. Pool tables and ping pong tables and weightlifting equipment. That's not a prison, that's the Hilton. In the Old Testament, when people were sent to prison, how was it? it? Never mind Old Testament, if you go to uh, parts of Europe, uh, I was in England for some business, and I had some time off, and uh, it was a few years ago. I just thought I'd take tours around. I was by myself. And uh, I ended up going into some uh, old prisons. And somehow those people in England had, had, had pretty good uh, copies of prisons from the Old Testament. They had them in the basement, basement meaning underground, there's no light, dampness, water, and darkness. And dungeons, people were thrown into dungeons, big holes, and then one little opening, throw you down there about eight or ten feet, hope you land okay, and put a cover on top. That was it! People would come out of those prisons, out of those dungeons, unable to see because they'd been living in darkness for so long. Diseased, many died there, sores on their bodies. And that is the condition of the human race. In darkness, in dungeon, prisoners to sin, destined to die. And release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To proclaim the year of the Lord. Every 50 years, in the uh, in uh, Israel, or for the Jews, they were required, kings, governments, neighbors, family members, everybody was required to forgive all debts. All debts. Now, I don't know how, people, how long people lived back then. I imagine by age 50, many of them were probably dead already. I don't know. But every, not by your age, you can be, every, every calendar 50 years of the Judaic calendar, there was a year of the Lord where people were required to forgive all debt. So, if you had lost your land and your farm to the mortgage company, your debt was forgiven, you could go back and get your land again. Reclaim everything. If somebody owed you, and you were in possession of their materials, well, guess what? You got to give them back. So there was great celebration when people were forgiven their debts. The year of the Lord, Jesus, the year of the Lord to proclaim. I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, with the law already required them to forgive every 50 years in the, Lord, in the year of the Lord, why would they need a new guy to come and pro proclaim it again? They wouldn't. It was already in the law. But when we study the spiritual understanding of this, it says, I am here to proclaim the spiritual year of the Lord. We have not yet in this church talked about the doctrine of type and anti-type. Have we? 
I don't know yet. What that means is, on earth, there's a spiritual type, a spiritual miniature of what is to happen in heaven. For example, on earth, the Jews had a sanctuary. Am I right? They had a sanctuary. Inside the sanctuary, this is the courts, holy place, most holy place, right? The Ark of the Covenant, and so on. That's a type of temple which is in heaven, where God's throne is the Ark of the Covenant. There's a holy place, most holy place, and the courts that we talk about. And Revelation tells us about that sanctuary, by the way. So there is a type on earth and the anti-type in heaven on which the type is designed. So there's a big spiritual universe. And in that spiritual universe, this is the anti-type. The Lord's year, the year of the Lord, is the anti-type. The type of that is every 50 years you forgive debt. That is the example that is a sample of preparing your heart for forgiveness on earth. That is the, 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 the temporal, if you will. And of that temporal type is a spiritual anti-type in heaven. And that is what he's talking about. The year of the Lord, because this is the year of the Lord that says it's upon you. When the one who's in charge of forgiving the debt, he is going to come. And just like the people are required to forgive debt, when we sinned, we ended up in debt to sin. How does Paul explain that? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what is the result of sin? Death. Sin requires death. In order to pay that debt for sin, you're required to pay by death. So, that, that person is going to come. This, uh, this the, the, the forgiveness of sin, the year of the Lord is going to come through Jesus Christ, who will pay that debt so that our debt may be forgiven. So our debt may be forgiven. And this is a great announcement in this third Advent Sunday, if you will, that Jesus Christ came and He lived a perfect life and He paid the debt for our sins that we may be freed from the bondage of sin, that dark dungeon, and brought out into the light. This is the good news. This is the good news. We can celebrate Christmas perhaps better than anybody else. I see homes that have a very simple, maybe Christmas decoration. Then you go by others and they look better than Disney World. You know, all decorated. You can see them shining from miles away. I'm not saying it's either good or bad. Now, I recognize and acknowledge 
that the Christmas that we celebrate here on earth nowadays, meaning December 25, is not a biblical date or a biblical Christmas. This has been chosen for us, and we can take advantage of this time to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we don't need to make a really big issue of it. But as we take advantage of this time, this season, we ought to remember that Christmas was much more than what the decorations are all about. It's much more than the gifts. It's much more than the songs. We need to go beyond the baby Jesus and allow him to grow up and become our Savior in our hearts. We can celebrate that he was born. We can remember that he was born. But we waste the first advent of Jesus Christ. If we don't accept him as our Savior and celebrate him every single day. This is the harm of us packaging up the birth of Jesus Christ. And nicely putting it on the shelf to be celebrated once a year. We make a mistake when we do that. We ought to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ every day in our lives by celebrating what Isaiah has said here. We ought to celebrate the perfect, righteous life of Jesus Christ every day. We have to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ, not just on Easter or Good Friday and Easter, but every day. We diminish His work by parceling all this out and putting them in specific times and dates. That are not. When Isaiah sees God in the temple, he says in chapter 6, Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips among the people of unclean lips. How can I even speak about you? <coughs> God makes him righteous by touching him with those coals. Those coals that came from the altar of sacrifice represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Where did the coal come from? The altar of sacrifice. <coughs> that hot coal represented the dying and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the altar of sacrifice. That touched him. And it is this verse here that tells us that they will be called oaks of righteousness. How can dirty, nasty, wretched, sinful humans be called oaks of righteousness? There is only one way. And that is when we are given here a garment of praise, says the writer. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So in that spirit of righteousness, in that garment of righteousness, we now have the ability to go before God and say, Dear God, although I am a sinner, but I've been covered by Jesus Christ. I've been covered by Jesus Don't let this season draw attention away from Jesus and salvation. Don't allow your attention to be taken away by the Christmas trees and by the wreaths and by the singing and by the great meals and by the gifts. 
These are distractions that will take you away from the true celebration of who Jesus Christ is. Focus on Him. This season and every day because when it comes to the advent of Jesus Christ, the first advent is very important because without it we would have no salvation. But Isaiah also talks about that a time when Jesus is going to come and he will prove with vengeance, with vengeance, that he is a king and the destroyer of evil. That first advent was great and it should be celebrated. <coughs> but the second advent is an anticipation for which we ought to be ready. Because just as the first advent came true to prophecy, the second advent will be coming true to prophecy also. We'll take 30 seconds. We hear today people talking about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and so on. All of this is the coming of Christ, the returning of Christ. Don't let your attention be drawn to that kind of stuff. The Bible tells us, no man knows when the Son of Man will come. Only the Father. And if any preacher, including my friend John Hagee, if they tell you that, oh, now the temple is being rebuilt and we know Jesus is going to come in Jerusalem, don't listen to the nonsense. You know why? No activity on earth can control when God does whatever He wants to do. Only God knows when Jesus is going to come back. It is not our action or inaction. The only, the only expectation of, is, is required of us. The Bible tells us, when this gospel is preached in all the world, then shall the end come. That is it. Jesus said, that I will come as a thief in the night, but nobody will know. Then how is it that we're talking about rebuilding this temple? Don't fall for that. There's just a 30-second advertisement in, in the sermon so that you're not misled during the week. Watch yourself. Take everything and check it with the Bible. Everything. And don't wait for your pastor or any pastor because the Holy Spirit will lead your study of the Scriptures if you pray and pray and pray before you start studying the Bible. Back to the sermon. And you're thinking, is the guy going to quit now or what? The sermon is too long, I know. But I don't want you guys to, you know, feel like you got ripped off. How long does it take? You wake up in the morning, takes uh, uh, Danny about 30 seconds to get dressed. But the rest of you, you know, I know, take a long time. Because you look good. Well, Danny looks good too, but he doesn't, you know, doesn't need to do much. But you take all that time to get dressed. Drive all this way here, and if I only preach for 10 minutes, ah, oh, wait, you know, it's not fair. I want to give you your money's worth. So, preach a little longer. There is no greater responsibility for a pastor than to know that everybody that hears his voice and his message is brought to an understanding of salvation 
and be warned to examine our lives, that we may be ready to meet Jesus Christ when we find Please, do that. Not here, at your home. Go home, pray. Get on your knees, pray. Ask God to show you where you stand with Him. Let your life may be transformed as I pray for myself and for you. That we may become what God wants us to become. And joyously look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. That when He comes, we'll be prepared to meet Him. In the Jesus Christ. This was the entire purpose of the first advent. Is to make the way clear for us to meet Jesus in the second advent. That's what the first advent was all about. And if we're not ready for the second advent, we have wasted the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Coming to church doesn't make you a saved person. It's a relationship with God. My prayer for myself is the same as it is for you. And may God grant us the daily and continuous awareness of our need of the Savior. God has done His part in providing the Savior, providing that land. We now have to make a choice. Where are we going to end up? And I beseech you, all of you, to dig into your hearts and ask God to touch you as I ask God to touch me. That we may become children of God. That He may be able to put that crown on our head and take away the ashes. That we can become princes and princesses in heaven with God for eternity.